Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Diadam Salonkomer, the host of this channel. And today I'm here with Tom Bradrut to talk about his book, Fire on the Island, Fear, Hope and Christian Revival in Vanuatu. As I say about every book that I pick up, I think the title itself uh, really attracted me because it talks about revival. Now, uh, why the, the title, the revival kind of attracted me is because of the my research work also because the place that I'm doing my research uh, Nagaland among the people there revival plays a very important aspect and very important role in their Christian life so I think that has been kind of attraction point to coming to this book so I'm sure today we'll have a really you know comprehensive discussion on the aspect of Christian revival and how it works among the day-to-day life of the people and today I'm here with the author himself Dr. Tom Patrut to talk about his book so uh, hopefully we'll have a fruitful discussion also I believe that the listeners will clean a lot from this short discussion that we have. So straight away, going to the author himself, Dr. Dom, uh, can you tell us something about yourself? Yes. Hi. Uh, and thank you so much for, for inviting me to the podcast to talk about the book. Uh, so my name is Tom Bratrud. Uh, I am a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Oslo at the Department of Social Anthropology. Uh, and this book, Fire on the Island, is based on my now more than 10 years of uh, research engagement with the small island community of Akam in Vanuatu in the South Pacific. Um, and um, the, my research there was initially about other things. I mean, it was about the, um, the, the complexity of living on a very small island that doesn't really have enough resources to, to sustain the population. But then doing my, my second fieldwork uh, on uh, on Akam 2014, this Christian revival hit and became, and it had to had to become my my the main theme for my PhD research, and now it ended up uh, as a book. Quite interesting. Now, um, I mean, you have said something about uh, the book also. So you said that when you were doing your research, the revival hit. Can you can you tell us something about the people and the history in a sense? Yeah. Okay. So. Akam, the Akam community is um, it's a it's a people of around 600 people living on a on a very small island outside of the bigger island Malakula in central Vanuatu and um, this is a community of people who are migrants from other parts uh, of uh, of uh, central Vanuatu and who actually formed this community in the late 1800s as part of a Christianization process. So Christianity has been very much at the core of uh, the, um, the social organization, the history, and also the, uh, the, the values, in a sense, of, of this community. But then, over the past decades, it has also been a troubled place because of many land disputes and disputes over um, leadership. Because, um, as mentioned, this is a place that doesn't really have enough resources to sustain the population, the growing population. So in a sense, there's been a value conflict and an existential conflict, you can say, uh, between uh, the idea about living together and caring for one another as kin, because everyone in the community are, are kin. They're pretty close kin, actually. So that's sort of important for them to, to live together in a peaceful, peaceful way. But it's also really important to be able to, um, to secure land rights because then you know you can grow food and you can fish and you can have a place to put your house and for your children to put a house and your grandchildren. So as land resources have become more scarce and also after, I mean, the Vanuatu government opened up for the possibility of leasing out land to to uh, to foreigners or others who had money 
throughout Vanuatu, which has meant that quite a bit of land in this area has been leased to, to wealthy foreigners, which means that there is a pressure on land rights, pressure on resources from several, uh, I mean, angles in a sense. So people have been living now uh, for two, three uh, decades with this tension of community on one side, peaceful relationships, peaceful coexistence, and rupture and conflict over this very basic uh, elements to, to make a living. So uh, when this revival hit, uh, the community and its leaders had attempted, they had, tried, they had tried many different strategies to sort of um, fix this problem, to actually manage to, to live together in some sort of peaceful, kin-based Christian coexistence. Um, uh, but they hadn't managed partly because the political leaders, the chiefs, were also involved in this conflict. So they didn't really have support, they didn't have trust. Um, but then there was a Christian revival movement led by children, a pretty miraculous thing that was very different from, you know, anything else that people had, you know, experienced. And there were rumors saying that this Christian revival movement led by children that developed in the neighboring district, it had amazing effects. I mean, people were, the political, the chiefs were surrendering to the Holy Spirit. Sorcerers who had been causing a lot of, tr lot of trouble were, you know, giving away their remedies and people were really starting to live a new life. So a lot of people on Akam, when, when they heard about this, they wanted this to happen on their own island as well in the hope that it could, you know, change their society and transform it into this, this kind of peaceful place uh, of uh, social cohesion of, uh, you know, where everyone were, you know, living as peace, peaceful Christians, peaceful kin um, together and could share their resources, not having to fight over stuff anymore. Um, so then this revival was invited in and then it just exploded, basically. Yeah, very interesting context. So can you tell us something about your fieldwork experience in that sense? Again, you know, when did you do your fieldwork and, you know, what was your experience and your participation uh, with the people itself? Yeah, what were some of the interesting experiences that you have had? Yeah, let's start with my first fieldwork in 2010. Uh, that was for my, for my master's uh, thesis. I spent seven months in Manuatu. And that was a, a fieldwork that was very much characterized by people's attempts to maneuver in this tension of land conflicts, conflicts over leadership, and living together as kin uh, in a peaceful, peaceful way. So I was already then sort of familiar with the, the pretty difficult context that we, people were living together in, in a sense, and then when I returned four years later in 2014, that was for my PhD fieldwork, then the conflicts were uh, were quite intense. I mean, uh, there had been some uh, some land conflicts, some court cases, and people were really um, not happy about how things were going. Uh, kin weren't talking to each other, and people were really fed up with how things were, were working in the community. Um, uh, so then this this Christian revival was invited in and 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 I uh, understood that okay so this is uh, a new attempt in a sense by <laughs> of people to try to to fix some things that were really difficult in uh, in the community and I was just okay so I need to follow this I wanted to co focus on something else for my research, but then, you know, as anthropologists, we just need to follow what's important for people. So then I started following the revival activities and uh, and uh, had to completely uh, change my plans. I mean, because this turned out to be a very spiritual um, uh, movement where uh, a 
number of children, up to 30 children, were suddenly starting to receive messages from the Holy Spirit, the, uh, the spiritual manifestation of, of the Christian God. Uh, and they were taking community members around the island while being in chants uh, to show us things and to to uh, to uh, let us meet, I mean, traditional spirits, to meet people who were um, uh, accused of being sorcerers, to go to places that had historical significance uh, on the island where murders had happened and where things were buried and where ancestral spirits lived. All these kind of pretty crazy things in a sense. And I, as an anthropologist, I mean, I had to, uh, I wanted to, to to understand what was going on properly. So I I followed, followed people, followed the visionary children, followed uh, other community members who were following them. And so this turned out to be a pretty uh, uh, extraordinary field experience because, um, uh, I mean, encountering, uh, yeah, having some experiences myself as well with things I, I really couldn't really explain uh, right away with my own sort of worldview or my own, uh, yeah knowledge about the world, I mean, feeling things, seeing things. Uh, so um, uh, so that, that was uh, actually an important, these personal experiences as well were, were important for, um, for how uh, I talked about, I got to talk about these things with my interlocutors who also had similar experiences. Uh, and then they also become an important part of my book because uh, I mean, uh, when I came home after the fieldwork and I had this this special, pretty intense uh, experiences from the field, I was really, um, you know, I was asking friends and my supervisors if I could really write about this about these things because I hadn't really, you know, I hadn't read so much about it in the literature because it was, you know, usually it's this, you know, analysis and field descriptions and and these kind of things but and then we had some really good discussions about it and um, as it turned out I mean I, I heard other uh, ethnographers as well you know when I raised this 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 issues um, they also told me that they had had uh, you know experiences that they had chosen to not write about because I mean as one famous anthropologist who will uh, stay uh, anonymous <laughs> Uh, said, you know, I, uh, why should I write about it? I didn't want to make a fool out of myself. But um, but that was really sort of uh, also made me want to write about some of these experiences uh, because uh, if it's something that people do experience in the field but they don't write about, then at least I can can you know, make myself vulnerable in a sense and do it. But also so that was one motivation for that, but also to sort of show that the ethnographer um, is also affected by things. It's not just, you know, the, the local people people being, you know, mad or whatever. This is also, these are also experiences that can, uh, can affect the ethnographer. Yeah, very, very interesting personal experience in did in that sense of uh, going to the field and having the experience with the people and living together with the people. Now, coming to the framework, you talk about the anthropology of good. Now, this is the kind of overall framework that you kind of look at it. So, can you tell us something about this anthropology of good? In essence, what is this? Yeah, so the anthropology of the good is, uh, is I guess, um, a framework that was established by... Uh, by Professor Joel Robbins, uh, famous anthropology anthropologist of, of Christianity and of values, and also of, of Melanesia as a region. So he he uh, he, he uh, wrote about this first in uh, in uh, an article in the Journal of the Royal Anthropological Institute in 2013, where he um, where he uh, uh, you know, um, 
about how anthropology has often been uh, very occupied with uh, suffering uh, and how people uh, around the world are sort of victims of um, various uh, political, economical processes and uh, but in that which is of course a very important uh, uh, sort of approach and so much important knowledge has come out of of that anthropology but still as he argues uh, people are not only living in suffering I mean even though they're they're uh, living under difficult conditions uh, and they're oppressed um, they also have uh, things they value in their lives that's something that makes them want to live and that uh, sort of makes them uh, just motivated to go on so they have also good things in their lives uh, in the midst of, of all this, uh, this suffering in a sense and uh, um, so he is um, in this article is requesting for anthropologists to also think about uh, how people try to live good lives uh, if it's um, lives that are enjoyable, that they enjoy uh, living, or if it's actually how people also try to, 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 uh, to live lives that are good for others and good with others. So I was uh, inspired by this framework uh, in my work because um, uh, the case that I write about in the book, which is uh, the case of the people of Akam Island in Vanuatu, they are sort of living under difficult conditions uh, in many ways. But this revival and a lot of um, the things that people actually do in their everyday lives are motivated by uh, ideas about uh, I mean, ideas of what they find to be good and desirable. So they're always trying to find ways of living a good life uh, as they uh, understand it, what a good life is. So, so I've been very inspired by, by Joel's, um, Joel's framework in, in trying to sort of incorporate uh, notions of the good, which includes hope, which includes uh, uh, future prospects, which includes values, ideas about ethics and morality, um, to to sort of merge that with also the sort of the political economy uh, or political economical conditions that uh, that people live their lives. Uh, within and that they're trying to sort of transform into something that is that is good so they can have have good lives i mean lives that they desire to to live yeah yeah in chapter one you talk about mm, sorcery and how revival acts as uh, as a form of anti-sorcery vigilantism so mm. you know the first thing is about sorcery right so i mean Anthropologically speaking, how, how how do we understand sorcery in that sense? You know, or, and what framework are you taking in trying to understand sorcery, and uh, how is it related to the revivals in the context that you are studying? That's a good question. So when I approach sorcery, I'm I'm trying to um, to combine a few perspectives because uh, in the literature um, of South Pacific. Africa, many other places, uh, people like uh, the Comoros, for instance, uh, have pointed out how sorcery uh, and the construction of sorcery, in a sense, can be seen as a um, as a response or an experience of the the difficulties of. Uh, of the modern condition in a sense, where people are uh, feeling alienated, uh, uh, social relationships are, um, are unstable and feel insecure. Uh, there is a sense that something is going on 
that is disrupting the good and stable life, but you don't really know what it is and you can't really point to what it is, then uh, sort of this lack of, of um, uh, lack of a victim in a sense is just that becomes sorcery or uh, the lack of the lack of someone to blame in a sense or what is to blame okay it's sorcery it's this uh, field of uh, you know someone is doing something that is to the um, um, that is destroying our lives so sorcery can take so many different forms because it's a very vague um, uh, thing in a sense that people don't really, they're not sure what it is themselves. Uh, so I'm taking that, uh, that perspective and um, using also anthropologists of Melanesia, Knut Rio, for instance, talking about how uh, I mean, the social social life in Melanesia, in the South Pacific, is all, always um, uh, there's a sort of a foundational insecurity in it, because you uh, all, you're always uh, in the risk of having people do uh, unfavorable things to you. In a sense, right? You depend so much on your relations, so someone must uh, disrupt. The social flow at some point, so that's sort of that's sort of the, the uh, social factor that is uh, uh, sort of at the at the foundation of of uh, Melanesian sorcery in a sense. But I'm also talking about it as an existential uh, thing that is more spiritual. It's social existential, but it's also spiritual in a sense because. Um, in Vanuatu, I mean, people, uh, the invisible world is as real as the as the visible world in many ways. So there are spirits, there are there are nature spirits, there are ancestral spirits. So sorcery is also um, sort of a term uh, or a concept or just a, a framework that is used to talk about the destructive forces in the spirit world. So I'm um, combining both the social and the um, and the sort of more cosmological uh, explanations of sorcery here in the, in the book. Yeah, quite interesting. So revival, the pushback from the the revival to the sorcery, is it that uh, you know there are bringing some kind of disruption to the you know the spiritual and uh, social reality so is it so that the revival is kind of like uh, trying to push back against the disruption that is uh, coming up is it something like that yeah so the the thing in sort of akam cosmology is that okay so there is a spiritual world that exists with us around us all the time and the christian god is really at the top of the hierarchy of those spirits there are, you know, tens of tens of uh, of other spirits, traditional spirits, but then the Christian God is really the, the king or the queen of the of the spirit world. So, in the revival, uh, the sort of a, a really important point about the revival was the activation of um, of the 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 Christian God with its I mean, the full force of the Christian God. I mean, all the potential, the cosmological potential of the Christian God, all those powers could be activated. There was that that kind of, that idea and that experience as well. So uh, in the context of Akam, where people were, you know, they were in, uh, in conflicts with each other, they were um, experiences, experiencing a lot of insecurity, that's, typically a context where also the fear of sorcery grows stronger because if people are in conflict then you must expect that people want to sort of take each other down or uh, you know to secure their own own land rights uh, for instance take down an opponent in some way there is a fear of that and that typically um, 
activates the, the fear of sorcery. Okay, so there must be sorcery now because you know those two are are fighting. Then sorcery. There, one of them is probably li is likely to use sorcery or ask someone to do sorcery to hurt the other. Uh, so in this context, there was a lot of sorcery fear, which made it more important uh, that the uh, the other this cosmological power of good, that is the Christian God, had to be stronger to fight that sort of um, the increasing strength of the, the the sorcery powers that were sort of really you know growing in the community at that point. So. So, um, so an important part of the revival was to 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 make the power of the Christian God stronger, so that it could break down the sorcery powers that were really at work in the community because of this conflict. Yeah. Now, when you're talking about the activation of the power of the Christian God, now, uh, interestingly. I mean, the question that comes to my mind is, how does it work? Now, I'm sure there will be some kind of like usage of the, you know, the force, what the Christian call as the Holy Spirit, or as you talk about in the book, uh, the in the charismatic realm, the anointing of the Holy Spirit and then the visions that come about and all those things. So, uh, you know, in day-to-day -day reality, right, in terms of activating the God Spirit, what are the performances or the ritualistic uh, performances that are there to activate that force? Hmm. The, good question. So this was um, I can give a little bit of context for that maybe because I mean the uh, the 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 accepted uh, way to access God's powers is um, is uh, typically uh, food offerings and uh, prayers and offering uh, money as tithes that should then be distributed out to people in need. So because um, God wants people to be good to one another, help each other. Um, so then giving money that can then be distributed out and then God will, will give his help in return in a sense. But, but uh, people didn't experience that God really responded as they wanted because you know the response wasn't strong enough. So, um so the really important here became this this little children who um, who became mediums uh, for the holy spirit or mediums between the people and the holy spirit uh because uh normal people adults they were um considered having too many other priorities in their lives too many concerns so if they prayed, then it wouldn't. The prayer wouldn't be uh, strong enough or deep enough, or yeah, it wouldn't be uh, pure enough, almost to sort of return, uh, you know, the, the the maximum force of of God's help in a sense. But the children, they were different. They were pure. They could concentrate on uh, on meditating with uh, with this sort of the spiritual messages from, from the Holy Spirit. So that was important. It was sort of a, a clear channel between people and uh, and God or the, the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then it was when the when the channel was open in a sense, then it was it, it was prayer. Um, uh, really uh, uh, concentrated prayer uh that didn't let other concerns in it was you know the, the pure desire to 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 engage with with the holy spirit um but then um uh the community also had to build uh a special special prayer centers on the island that could sort of be um be places w where um where the powers of the Holy Spirit could 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 rest in a sense in the everyday life, and where people could go if they if they were in in need of something. So so actually, uh, uh, the the Holy Spirit was giving messages to the to the mediums about uh, tabernacles that had to be built as this or this uh, special prayer spots. 
where the power should be particularly strong and it had to have some um, specifications symbolic that sort of um, you know were used to to call almost like I mean landing lights on a on an airstrip for planes right so they had to be red white and blue to to um, to to show that people uh, were dedicated to the um, to the uh, the core principles of Christianity, as it was uh, interpreted in this context, the blood of Jesus, peace, and um, uh, what was the blue again? I don't remember. Yeah. Anyways, so it had to be the special um, prayer centers, and then have the the pure mediums who could sort of be channels for for the powers and for the messages and desires of the people. Yes. Now, coming to the question of uh, religion, I think violence is an important aspect and one of the pressing questions while coming to religion. And you also kind of talk about the sacred and violence that, that is involved. So in your context and also in generally, how do we understand, you know, violence that are, you know, mitigated uh, in name of... In, in the name of sacred, in the sense, how do we really understand this aspect? And here, in this context, is against the sorcerers, right? So how do we understand this aspect? Yeah. Okay, so I, um, it's, a, it's a good question. I th and I think that was really one of the things that, that puzzled me in the beginning with this case, was that because one of the really dramatic and terrible outcomes was that two two men were, were murdered because they were... Um, they were uh, thought to be sorcerers who had killed uh, more than 30 people in the community and caused a lot of, of problems. Um, that's that's a, a case I described in the in the book. Uh, so I, I I was quite puzzled uh, by how um, a people because this is a community where violence is sort of the the, the worst of of sins. At least, especially murder. I mean, you should really not murder anything. If you take another person's life, that's like taking the life of a of a Christian brother and, uh, or sister, which is really just you know violating uh, God's plan because God God has a plan with every human being, right? That idea. So, but this this uh, two men were were killed. Uh, and uh, subject to violence, uh, but kind of in the, in the name of God, because they were uh, they were uh, murdered to to get rid of evil powers in the community, to let you know God's good good powers flow, overflow instead of and get rid of the the evil powers, because they were these two men were sorcerers and representatives of evil powers. So it was kind of uh, this um, this case of good violence being necessary to eradicate bad violence in a sense. So, so I uh, eventually I came over uh, the French philosopher uh, René Girard and his theory of uh, violence and the sacred, uh, or his book Violence and the Sacred, uh, where he kind of um, goes into similar cases where where violence is thought of as necessary to get rid of disturbing elements uh, in society that are uh, uh, hindering people in living uh, holy lives in a sense. So I think uh, his theories were really interesting and uh, and relevant for this case because what is is uh, is happening is that people are really trying to live as holy as they can or lives that are as uh, aligned with God's sort of holy guidelines for human beings as possible. But then you have these people who are uh, doing sorcery, which is uh, in this um, context, it's Sources are people who are, you know, they're using um, traditional spirits that are interpreted to be uh, related to Satan, 
because they're used to, to hurt people, to kill people. So you're trying to live a good, holy, holy life, and then there are some people who are really, you know, not willing to to be part of that, and they're disrupting it. They they would still want to to create problems and draw on evil powers instead. So so having that sort of interpretation of things uh, can make people. Uh, legitimize using violence for a, for a higher cause, in a sense, because violence now is necessary to get rid of this persistent evil powers that are really corrupting our community. Um, so, um, so using Girard's theories of, uh, of sacrifice um, and uh, the escape scapegoat theories. I mean, these sorcerers, they really become the, became the scapegoats of the community. Everyone were trying to live good lives aligned with God's will, but these two guys, they, they were constantly going against that. So then that sort of legitimized good violence in a sense to eradicate their bad violence. Now coming to chapter, coming to chapter two and three. In chapter 2, in one of the passages, you say that resentment was of central importance to why so many islanders embraced the revival. Now, you, t- you are talking about resentment in the form of these land disputes. And also, you say that because of the resentment, people turned to the revival with the coming of the revival. And also, at the same time, this revival shed new light on the problems and fears of the people. So, can you elaborate something on this? I mean, land disputes, resentment, and people turning to revival and, you know, finding new light to their problems and fears. How does this work? Yeah. So the land disputes, they were really, was really at the core there was the division of people. And that was something that people were constantly afraid of, in a sense, because people are close kin. They want to live together in a peaceful community. But the land disputes were really tearing people apart or tearing the community apart. So in that sense, they um, and the, the, the land disputes, uh, which implied conflicts, also implied uh, increased um, uh, possibility of sorcery, because people perhaps wanted to to hurt each other, because they were fighting over over important things. So in that sense, the revival, uh, which uh, uh, had that it's very core the idea of peace uh, of um, uh, productive relationships between people and humility that was sort of a, an alternative framework that was became really important in this context where people were experiencing the the opposite no Coming to chapter four, you talk about uh, revival and gender, and that's a very interesting aspect that you talk about actually, and you argue that revival created this gender-based hierarchies in that sense. So coming to the female, you say that revival exaggerated female gendered qualities which made men feel marginalized. And then coming to the men, you talk about the charismatic challenges of masculinity. So what are these challenges and what is this female gendered quality that are enhanced by the revival? Can you explain this more? Yeah. So um, as I explained in the the book, I mean, the social world uh, on Akam, other places in Vanuatu, maybe Melanesia, uh, the social world is quite gendered. We can talk about a sort of female social form and a male social form, where the female social form is often centered around uh, relationships, the building of community through, I mean, intermarriage. Women are, you know, very much the persons who are connecting and binding together different groups, different families. And also their social activities on the island are very community-based. They are uh, very much about uh, connecting different uh, groups and families in the community. Whereas men, the male social form is traditionally much more hierarchical, uh, connected to personal ability of the, of the man, related to the, to the the, the secret male society that I describe, I'm not going to go too much into that now, but I describe it in the book. And also this, the, the fact that males are the, um, the managers of the land and of the clan. So they are much more um, uh, sort of, the male social form is much more individualized, not so much about the connection between different groups, but about 
keeping the group strong or the family strong and uh, and with rights to to whatever they they need and money to survive and these kind of things so the re revival was very much um communicating that individual um prestige for instance or uh um uh focusing on your own good at the uh, expense of the well-being of others that was a practice that had to stop because that was really against god's will for human beings and for the community so this kind of messages uh, of the revival was very much in line with how the women already lived on the island and how the female sociality worked whereas it was really challenging you know a lot of the priorities of the men especially in this context where people were really you know, worried about losing land, and losing control uh, over their very foundational resources for actually, you know, for living. So, so the revival uh, sort of lifted up the the women and their way of life, and it really made the men the, the scapegoats actually of of sort of of the community and the reason for why the community was in such a bad state. So it sort of created new hierarchies in that sense, based on, on gender. The women were good and the men were, were bad, in a sense. Yes. Now, in charismatic Christian circle, spiritual give is something which is very much emphasized. Now, spiritual give is actually, they think about it as something which is meant for the community, in a sense. Right? Someone having a spiritual gift is meant for the well-being of the community. Now, but then you also talk about spiritual give in such a way that it marginalizes certain people, the negative effects of it. So, in the context that you are studying... How do we understand these spiritual gifts? And also, what is the kind of marginalization that is brought about by these spiritual gifts? Yeah, good question. So, so the spiritual gifts were, were given from the Holy Spirit to, to people uh, to, to realize, to help realize God's will uh, among people, in a sense. So, and it was those people who were considered particularly pure who received this this gifts, uh, which was really difficult because this is a community where where uh, people are pretty egalitarian. So, if you have dispositions, uh, if you have qualities that make you seem better than others, then you sort of you're quick to to um, to laugh that off or you know realign yourself on the level with others. But when God, I mean, God, the, the number one cosmological power, sort of pointed you out as better than others and gave you spiritual gifts, that was a, a problematic thing uh, for many. And they were really kind of ashamed of, uh, of uh, being seen as, or accepting that they were better than others. So they were sort of maybe laughing it off and they didn't you know, do what the Holy Spirit uh, had asked them to do with the spiritual gifts. But in the context of, of Akam, I mean, um, Christianity is very much about uh, doing good to others. So the spiritual gifts were about helping others. You know, okay, so you got this, this gift now to help someone imp uh, work on themselves so they can have a, a better life and help them in their family life or so on. Um, so it was really a re relational device in a sense, but still people, some people were very ashamed of just being pointed to as better than others because they were chosen for, for these gifts. So that was a, an ambiguous, uh, ambiguous thing for many. Mm, yeah. Coming to chapter 5 and 6, this is where you talk about the spiritual warfare or the spiritual battle in the sense, and you mentioned about the examples of where the sorcerers surrendered, right? And also the kind of uh, spiritual warfare also brought about crisis and this crisis brought about reconciliation in the sense, re reconciliation through certain uh, transformative events. So how do we understand or conceptualize this spiritual battle in the sense, because uh, since you talk about spiritual battle in terms of you know this sorcerer surrendering so how do we understand the, the kind of battle that is happening spiritually and also uh, what very crisis that came about and what was the process of reconciliation yeah just putting few questions together but then related ones yeah yeah okay so i think the spiritual battle can be 
it can be understood in 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 a few different ways uh, so on, on the surface this was really uh, about uh, i mean the 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 very real presence of evil powers uh, that you couldn't see but that were trying to destroy the community uh, with the help of sorcerers uh, and then the christian god or the holy spirit who was there to fight with people for for um, for the good a good peaceful society i mean so there were these powers working that you couldn't see but you could feel them and you can see them in the trees and you can see them getting into people and animals and these kind of things so they're more sort of on the more cosmological level in a sense but what the spiritual um battle was also about was really about uh, social values uh, and how the different cosmological powers in this battle were seen as representing different social values moral values so the revival was uh, all the time simultaneously about sort of the cosmological level about the spirits who were really real in people's experience of them but also about particular forms of sociality and how to be as a human being and be uh, uh, towards others. Yeah, now coming to the last chapter, that is chapter seven, right? Um, before the conclusion, you talk about, now this is where you talk about the whole aspect of fear and hope. The the fear that the context, the crisis brings about and the hope the revival brings about to them. So. In the context that you are studying and in the way that you are trying to understand fear and hope, how does this fear and hope work together in the context of the people that you are studying and in the context of the crisis and the revival that has come about? Yeah, yeah. So I guess this takes us to the to the main theoretical contribution of the book, which is how fear and hope are are powerful sentiments that work together to mobilize people who who want to change. Uh, and at the core of that uh, that argument is that so I, I draw here on the French philosopher René Descartes uh, and the piece from his The Passions of the Soul, which is not a new source. It's from 1649, so it's quite old, <laughs> but still relevant in that he says that uh, uh, if we have too much fear, uh, that will uh, not give room for for hope and it will make us sort of just um, uh, lose hope that we we are able to change things but if we have too much hope and not fear then we will be so sure that things will be okay that we don't really need to act for change so you know we can just let it all be and think things will be good but if we have both fear and hope together we both have hope that we can change things but we also fear of what might happen if we are not unable are not able to change things so that give us some kind of energy to to really go on uh, and uh, and want to want to change things we do we activate ourselves to to try to 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 change things for the good rather than the bad uh, so here i i draw on um on both uh, the place of social values for Akan people. I mean, they were really experiencing in this context that their their values, their ideas about a good life, um, it was falling apart basically because of all of these conflicts. So they were really fearing for the consequences of that. But still they had hope that it could be possible to change. I mean, they could change their society. Uh, but they also feared for what could happen if they didn't succeed. So here, throughout the book, I, I, I describe uh, many situations where you have this sort of interplay be between fear and hope and how that mobilizes people. And I also argue that when you have this fear and hope, at the same time, um, it increases the chances that you, that you uh, start rituals or that you turn to rituals to sort of try to um, to do something about things uh, you get together you uh, you draw on different things you you find to be powerful um, you ex experience sort of a collective uh, energy when you get together 
which also increases the hope that you can really change things. So that's sort of what I describe in, in the last chapter there. And I try to also show how this model or this idea, this theory can, uh, can also be used to, to explain or shed light on similar processes elsewhere around the world historically and, and today. Yes, I think there are so many aspects that um, needs to be discussed. Obviously, you talk about you know politics and Greta Thunberg, the you know about environment and how this can be applied. Very interesting aspects. But then, as we come to the end of the discussion, would you like to say anything in in terms of conclusion, and also something which I might have missed out to ask to you? Something very important. You want to say anything? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think this was a really really good conversation, and I, I want to thank you for for inviting me to it and for for all the good questions. And if anyone uh, listening to this wants to talk more about the book or have any questions or whatever, please send me an email or hit me up. Yes. And so, is there any other interesting project that you're working on now, or what is the project that you're working on now? Yeah, now I'm actually working in in rural Norway on different things uh, on a project there, particularly focusing on on uh, how uh, on what happens when people from the cities are moving out to rural areas to start a new life. What are the implications and what are the the grounds for those kind of processes? And then uh, then I plan to return to Vanuatu uh, in a few years' time again for for more research. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Dom Amkratrut. It has been a wonderful conversation. And I also like to tell the listeners that I'm sure you have had learned a lot from this conversation as we talk about revival and aspects and how fear and hope works together. And also, I'm sure there will be a lot of takeaway from this conversation. And whoever would like to you know, go, go deeper, I request them to get the book. Uh, it will not disappoint you. Yeah. So thank you very much, Dr. Dom, for being here at New Books Network. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much.